Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. Hey, and did you hear the good news? The good news about how we're gonna open up the country again by Beltane, you know, May Day, May 1st. That would be a beautiful thing. The thing about spring equinox, vernal equinox, vernal. Vernal is kind of a dumb sounding name. I mean, sure, it's from Latin. Vernus, that's nice. Var, an old Norse spring, we get it. But when you say vernal, especially up here in the high desert where I am, I mean, just out here in Hicksville, you say vernal and it sounds like somebody's cousin, you know? Hey, your cousin has kind of been hanging around upsetting my dogs. Oh, you mean Vernal? Well, he don't mean nothing. He's just out there smoking dope. It ain't illegal. Right. I don't care about the dope. I just sort of wish maybe he'd go stand on the opposite end of the road. Lean on his own truck. Give me a little space. The dogs are already on edge. It's like, when is he going to leave again? It's been, what, two weeks? Is he ever going to leave us alone again? So the thing about spring equinox is that's just the turn of the season. You're at the start, and depending on where you are, it's still kind of cold. You still have your coat in the truck, especially with that wind. There's nothing colder to a desert person than being blasted by that icy wind coming off the mountains with those last couple of storms. Because you are ready for the spring at this point, and it keeps being sort of cold. I mean, of all the things to complain about. I know. It's not a complaint, anyway. It's an observation. So once you get to Beltane or May Day, May 1st, the weather is generally about as beautiful as it gets in this part of the world. Really in all of America, most of Europe, all around the Northern Hemisphere. And it's coming up and we're all cooped up like a bunch of wind-up chickens trying to do the right thing. Now, I don't have any science or data or whatever you want to call it. But to my mind, I think it would be a beautiful thing to open up the country for Beltane. May Day. 
And you know we can keep our social distance if we still have to. But we can all hope to take part in the all-night fertility rituals on Beltane Eve. Around the great bonfires set up in every town square and park, golf course. All you can see is a lot of shadows of, I guess, naked people up there in the bushes and the junipers. Just like bunnies, I mean everywhere. Maybe those are actually bunnies. It is spring, after all. And you've got the old-fashioned pinwheel fireworks like in the Hobbit movies. And sure, we have been through a lot, but now it's Beltane. And we raise our individual compostable goblets of holy wine. Everybody's there. Most of us made it through. I was walking with the dog the other day, and I heard a cactus wren just yakking and cackling as they do. It was up there in a Joshua tree, just on the lookout. They make their nest in a choya, you know? And the choya needs to be about three feet tall before it's high enough for a cactus wren to leave its eggs there. Otherwise, the coyotes will just eat the eggs right out of the nest. It's like a breakfast buffet. But you know what they say in the desert, the cactus wren is a cactus friend. Now, May Day, what the followers of St. Minerva call Beltane in the Northern Hemisphere, is celebrated around the world, but rarely in the land of America. It's a holiday that celebrates nature and humanity together at last. And it's especially about community. And the funny thing is that May Day is an American holiday, an American invention. People have been celebrating Beltane as a sacred festival for many thousands of years. But the labor holiday, the workers holiday, began right here in America in the years following the Civil War. In the years when people were worked to death 16 hours a day in gruesome slaughterhouses and smoke-filled factories. Let me read you something about this historical moment from the International Workers of the World. A year before the Haymarket Massacre, Samuel Fielden pointed out in the anarchist newspaper, The Alarm, that whether a man works eight hours a day or ten hours a day, he is still a slave. Despite the misgivings of many of the anarchists, an estimated quarter million workers in the Chicago area became directly involved in the crusade to implement the eight-hour workday, including the Trades and Labor Assembly, the Socialistic Labor Party, and the local Knights of Labor. The posters and the workers' newspapers proclaimed, Make your demand for eight hours with weapons in your hands to meet the capitalistic bloodhounds, police, and militia in proper manner. 
Not surprisingly, the entire city was prepared for mass bloodshed reminiscent of the railroad strike a decade earlier, when police and soldiers gunned down hundreds of striking workers. On May 1, 1886, more than 300,000 workers and 13,000 businesses across the U.S. walked off their jobs in the first May Day celebration in history. In Chicago, the epicenter for the eight-hour day agitators, 40,000 went out on strike with the anarchists in the forefront of the public's eye. With their fiery speeches and direct action, anarchists became respected and embraced by the working people and despised by the capitalists. May Day, 1886. See? You know, the Grateful Dead does come up a lot. That's what we had scheduled to talk about. That's right. And we're going we're gonna to talk about the Grateful Dead. And even if this, if this doesn't float your boat, it's an interesting story. And we're not going to, like, play a bunch of the music or anything. So hang in there. And <laughs> if you have a desert musical artist that you'd like to here featured on desert oracle radio we actually do research and that kind of stuff let us know it's radio at desertoracle.com and there has never been a band i think anywhere at any point in history anywhere in the world that has created the long-term community that a band out of san francisco that used to be called the warlocks has created through their long career. And that's the Grateful Dead. And let's have Jason P. Woodbury tell us a real interesting desert story about this American institution. Well, so obviously the Grateful Dead are tremendously associated with San Francisco. And that's where the dead was birthed. And that's really where most of the group's story, which is wild and sprawls over the course of decades, takes place. But the idea of the American Southwest, the sort of mythic desert, um, is kind of threaded all throughout the band's history. I mean, obviously, you can think about the cowboy songs of Bob Weir, you know, and everybody's tolerance for Bobby's cowboy songs is different. So maybe that's your least favorite part of the Grateful Dead. Um, you know, or maybe it's your most favorite, but it's all throughout there, you know, these sort of cowboy ballads. Uh, and then the desert was kind of overshadowing things when they were making their sophomore album, Anthem of the Sun. Bob Weir, once again, had requested recordings of desert air. He called it thick air, you know? So these guys were sort of um, obsessed with the idea of the desert, so much to the point that when they eventually made their way to the pyramids at Giza in 1978, they played to this crowd of desert Bedouins off in the distance, people who hadn't bought tickets but just sort of came from the surrounding area. So I always find it fascinating that the dead seem to have this affinity for the desert. And as somebody who has got more into the group in the last decade or so, inspired predominantly by Arthur Magazine, suggesting that the band's catalog was worth more than my punk rock 
uh, friends and peers had led me to believe. I started, you know, getting into the dead and, and I've always wondered about the desert's role in the band's music because there's not a ton of stuff beyond, of course, tours through the American Southwest that connects the band to the desert. But it felt to me like there was something deeper there. And after a while, I realized that there, there kind of was. Three of the most famous dead songs from the band's early era, Saint Stephen, China Cat Sunflower, and Alligator, were actually written by lyricist Robert Hunter, who didn't sing with the band, but was a longtime friend of Jerry Garcia and a one-point musical partner. But he wrote those three dead classics while living in Arizona and New Mexico. Really? So this would have been in the late 1960s, presumably before Bob Hunter moved with Garcia to a house in Marin. I well, believe it, in 69. So it would have been before that. They had gone back for a while. You know, he was born in 1941. You know, he went to high school in Connecticut. But he returned in the early 60s back to California. And he hooked up with a young Jerry Garcia and would hang out. And they had like a little folk combo. And uh, they would study old blues records and all that stuff. And uh, it was around that time that he got involved in course in government-sponsored LSD tests at Stanford University, which is uh, a strange little hiccup in the story there. But the CIA was was very interested in LSD at the time. Right. Now, Kesey also was part of this Stanford government research program, wasn't he? That's right. That's right. And did Hunter and Kesey come together through that program? I know that the Dead eventually became the house band at La Honda. That's right. So uh, they kind of separated, but they had all been around. And at some point in the, the 60s, you know, Hunter uh, reconnects with Jerry Garcia. They kind of went separate. They went their separate ways. They were involved. Hunter and all these folks uh, at Stanford University in these LSD trials. And that, of course, impacted their, their various uh, activities. The Dead went on to become the house party at the, uh, the acid tests and was involved as this whole new movement was blooming. Uh, Garcia uh, was sort of spearheading that. And then Hunter went off to the desert and he sort of started hanging around and he was in like Lake Havasu and, and bumming around New Mexico when they got in touch again, Garcia and Hunter, and Garcia suggested that Hunter start writing up some lyrics for this band. That's one of the really interesting things about the Grateful Dead is that while there are lyrics written by the group, um, they employed two other pretty much full-time lyricists, you know? Bob right. Hunter had John Perry Barlow, you know? And both of Who, those guys are now gone. Yeah, and in just in recent years, yeah. And then Hunter had hooked up with Garcia. So Garcia would send him, you know, ideas and, and Hunter would send back these these lyrics that Garcia could then use and draw from. Sometimes there was some editing in the studio by other members of the band. I'm thinking of Pigpen, who Hunter was pretty furious when people tinkered with his words like that, but it still happened. I went back and I listened to those songs, those three specifically that I could, had evidence that were written in the desert, and I went and listened to them. Alligator and China Cat Sunflower, not picking up on a lot of desert vibes from those songs. St. Stephen does have some, you know, it talks about the barren lack of rain, 
beneath the sky and refers to the manzanitas dark and shiny in the breeze, you know? That's um, some real desert nature writing there involving things like manzanita, which is not the first desert plant that someone would bring up if they weren't familiar with the flora and fauna. Yeah, you get the sense that he was somebody who was, I mean, the the, the nature writing within the body of the Grateful Dead's music is is pretty intense, you know, from from everybody who, who worked with the group. There's beautiful descriptions drawn in part, of course, from those old folk ballad, you know, sort of roots that the group had. Um, but yeah, just really beautiful lyric writing about about natural spaces, the desert and otherwise. I mean, you listen to a song like Dark Star and it's, you know, it's this kind of cosmic nature writing that in, you know, a lot of ways was pretty, pretty profound sort of like poetry about these these galactic and astrological, astro, you know, like that stuff, astronomical rather, that stuff wasn't floating around in, in every circle quite so freely as it is now, you know? Hey, you want to hear a, a weird story about St. Stephen? I would love to hear a weird story about St. Stephen. So, some decades back, this would have been in the early 1990s, I had returned from living and working and making music in Eastern Europe, primarily Prague, and I got back and I needed some work and I needed a home, and through a girl I was dating, I got hooked up with a San Francisco 49er. Not a gold miner, a football player. But he <laughs> had done, I guess, one season, and then they you know, benched him or whatever they say in football. But he had some money, and he needed to invest that money so he'd have income for the rest of his life because his athletic career ended in the first few months. But he got some money from his signing and all that. So he bought a decrepit old apartment building between Knob Hill and the Tenderloin, what we called the Tender Knob. And it was mostly Section 8 studios. People are going to have a hard time believing this, but believe it because you're probably going to see it in the next year or two. San Francisco was cheap and mostly abandoned. So it was very inexpensive to live there. You could get around without a car, taking Muni. I would take the cable car to work when I worked in the financial district on a temp job. So this guy was a deadhead, the first of the wealthy kind of yuppie deadheads I'd ever met. This was in yeah. the early 90s, kind of when that, that third wave of Grateful Dead popularity, which slowed but did not end with with Jerry's death a couple of years after that was happening yeah, that, that was that was when the band was probably drawing the most people i think maybe now it's been said that they're drawing even more but that band was massive at the time you they know they were huge there've been a number of things that brought them back into the popular music consciousness there was the tribute album there were two tracks on there that i remember i'm still very fond of one was jane's addiction doing ripple okay beautiful really good 
And the other, which I still like and I hear now and then on, on Dwight Yoakam's Sirius XM channel, Dwight with his classic 80s band with Pete Anderson on guitar doing trucking. And it is a great version of trucking. If you haven't heard it, call it up on, on your, your music server thing since the record stores are closed right now, but it's real good. So, yeah, this dedicated guy, dedicated, thank you, dedicated. Uh, I think there was also a good Los Lobos track on there. On Looks my, like it. Like a fantastic. You got Los Lobos and Lyle Lovett and Cowboy Junkies and Bruce Hornsby, who was in the band, right? You know, Bella, all these guys. So they, yeah, they this, were coming off that hit too. Yeah, Touch of they had the hit with Touch of Grey, and that album did very well. They had a music video, all this stuff. Uh, Hunter wrote Touch of Grey, I believe. The lyrics, he did, he, he did, yeah. And they're, you know, they're kind of bitter lyrics. They're not quite the the Bob Hunter of 15 years ago, who had more of a kind of Western romantic approach to things. At this time, he's like, ah, they, every word the kids speak is obscene, and they haven't fed the dog in years, and etc. So this yeah. apartment building was named in honor of the song you're talking about, Saint Stephen. So wow. for a year plus or so, I managed this apartment building in the Tender Knob with a bunch of Section 8 uh, people who had been treated very poorly by the previous slumlord. And, you know, I was expected to treat them poorly, too, and I could not do that. So I was the... Uh, I was a sweetheart of the rodeo over there. I just refused to evict anyone and... As a result, people would always give me drugs. It was just a sweet time to be alive. <laughs> so that's yeah, a, that, that's a kind of a side we can we can do here when when people are literally writing and saying, "Please put up some longer things that we can just leave on." So we're going to put up a longer version of this conversation uh, beyond what you hear in the weekly twenty-eight minute show and. Tell me, uh, what's the plot, so to speak, of St. Stephen? St. Stephen's just sort of, it's this, it's this classic uh, outlaw sort of song, you know? It's this song where St. Stephen, who's cruising around, uh, he doesn't have a great reputation. The lyric talks about how wherever he goes, people all complain. But, you know, it's sort of this lyric ballad of... This guy who has gathered up what others are kind of throwing away. Been here so long, he's got to, got to go calling it home. It's just this insane sort of hippie uh, ballad, I guess, about really sort of freedom and sort of living just outside of the, uh, the, the law in a way. Which they were real good at. Now, how long do you think Bob Hunter lived out in the desert before returning to full-time songwriting duties. Well, it was just a couple of years that he was out there, you know, a couple of years in the late 60s. And then he got more connected to the group and then, of course, went off and did his own thing. Um, Bob Hunter did make a bunch of records, you know. He did, he did his own records. Uh, he, he has a great song called Arizona Lightning also on his record Tales of the Great Rum Runners from 1974, which has got members of the dead on it. Um, 
but he said he wrote that one in Lake Havasu while watching the Watergate hearing. So as you can imagine, uh, not the exact same sense of, hey, what's going on? It feels like the end of the world that we're feeling right now, but probably something similar, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the dread was heavy in that time. For me, when the dead's music starts to get really resonant, it's when that hippie dream breaking down around them. You know what I mean? From the end of the 60s with Manson and Altamont, which the dead played Altamont. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it was Jerry's idea to hire the angels. The band's sort of, I think, alliances with certain outlaw factions of the counterculture, including the the angels, who were not peace and love types, I think puts them in this weird position. You know, the Grateful Dead has always sort of had this idea of it's just sort of a facilitator of whatever needs to happen. It just creates the conditions for things to occur. And there's a little bit of that in the end of the 60s, where people aren't necessarily always willing to take responsibility for asking the Grateful Dead to, or not the Grateful Dead, the Hells Angels to run security, you know? Well, they were not just interested in peace and love types, if that was ever a primary interest. They were interested in American archetypes. That's really what, to me, the the lyrical story of of the dead is about. I want to tell you about one of my favorite Robert Hunter lyrics. I don't think we brought it up. Very much about the deserts. A kind of gold rush, William Burroughs, Carlos Castaneda, kind of Wild West, you know, that, that specific weird, trippy, spaghetti western outlaws, hippies in Virginia City dressed up like Victorian bartenders and opera singers. There's a lot of yeah. weird stuff going on. This one is close to my heart since my years living in Reno out in the Virginia foothills many years ago. And you know the one I'm talking about, yeah? I lit out from Reno. I was trailed by 20 hounds. Yeah, yeah. Friend of the devil. That's right. And he's headed east across the desert, across the Intermountain West. Spent that night in Utah in a cave up in the hills. There you go. Like, the desert is always been where America projects all of its fantasies and its nightmares and its dreams, you know? And it's where we often go try it, whether it be a utopian commune in Yano in the western Mojave or the great state of Utah, the beehive state and the many social experiments that they're still doing there. You gotta respect the approach to community and the approach to prepping Not prepping in a nutty way, prepping in a way to get you through hard times because they've gone through hard times when they came out there. When we were first talking about this, the idea of of Bob Hunter writing in the desert, and uh, oh, there's just, there's so much stuff just in, in Friend of the Devil. You got sheriffs, you got patrimony, you got polygamy, you know, all these Southwestern things. From Amboy to Zizek's and across the great Mojave wilderness, this is Desert Oracle Radio. We broadcast from Joshua Tree on Friday nights. You can get our podcast anywhere. And we've got a Patreon set up, and boy, do we appreciate the patrons about now. 
Thanks to Jason P. Woodbury from Zia Records and Aquarium Drunkard. Happy birthday to the cosmic cowboy in Tennessee, Jonathan Childers. And thanks, Leah, for that letter. Soundscapes by Red, Blue, Black, Silver. Good night from the Voice of the Desert.